Hey there, Ipsy Stories listeners. I just want to thank you for your patience waiting for this January 2022 episode. I promise that this episode was definitely worth the wait, because what you are about to hear is something very special. This episode marks the beginning of a partnership between Ipsy Stories and the Washtenaw County African American Genealogical Society, and we are looking forward to working with them even more in the future to continue with our mission of uplifting narratives, voices, and perspectives that have, all too often, not been heard. I don't have Black loyalists. I have white revolutionaries. That's my history. It's a complicated history. You look at me and you don't see those people. Because the color of my skin doesn't show the complexity of my history. But that's the same thing for people who look like you. It's just who we are. And like I said, that critical race theory, that's my family history. It is complicated. If we tell the truth about who we are and the truth of our history, we'd be a better country and we'd be a lot better people. All right, you're rolling. Hi there. My name is Shoshana, and I'm a librarian at the Ypsilanti District Library. Welcome to the library's podcast, Ipsy Stories. Ipsy Stories is a podcast about the history of Ypsilanti told in story form by historians, academics, community members, and local experts. This podcast seeks to unearth stories and perspectives that may be new to you and are often unheard. Our hope is that by listening to these episodes, you'll gain better understanding of our collective past, present, and future. The views expressed by each guest are their own and do not represent the views of the library. Today we will be learning about the work of the Washtenaw County African American Genealogical Society from founder and co-chair Cheryl Garnett. Ms. Garnett will also be discussing special issues regarding genealogy for people with African American ancestry, sharing some of her experiences in the African American genealogy community, and recounting some of her ancestral history. Cheryl Garnett is a retired administrator of the Veterans Hospital, mother of five children, and grandmother of 15 children. Ms. Garnett graduated from Cass Technical High School in Detroit and received her Bachelor's of Science and Master's degree from Eastern Michigan University here in Ypsilanti. Ms. Garnett is on the board of the Fred Hart Williams Genealogical Society, the Washtenaw County Genealogical Society, and is the founder and co-chair of the Washtenaw County African American Genealogical Society. She is the author of My Grandma's Magic Purse, 
has been featured in articles in Current Magazine and Black Magazine regarding her work, and has been featured on the radio by outlets such as Michigan Radio, WEMU-FM Ypsilanti, and Public Radio in England, speaking about DNA testing results for African Americans. Most of all, she's a seriously seasoned genealogist, especially when it comes to her Canadian ancestors. For anyone who has not heard of this institution, what is the Washtenaw County African American Genealogical Society? WACS, or Washtenaw County African American Genealogy Society, it started out as a group of friends and a couple of cousins. They got together and decided that we'd start a genealogy society specifically for African Americans in Washtenaw County to help each other with our genealogy research. This was back in 2013. We met at the library in Whitaker Road on Saturdays to really help each other with our research because African-American genealogy research doesn't necessarily start out being different than straight genealogy, but there are different roadblocks and barriers that people were finding. And so we get together as a group to help each other because people were in different levels of understanding how to do research and had different skill levels. And so we thought, well, let's get together and help each other. There is a Washtenaw County Genealogical Society, and that genealogical society is predominantly a white genealogical society, mainly focusing on the different ethnic groups here in Washtenaw County. But there are only two or three African-American members of that society. So the majority of the presentations and the majority of the studies and the areas that were looked at were European areas, and they weren't really focusing on African-American research or African-American problems. And so we thought, well, we'd pull our resources and help each other. And that was how we got together and formed the society. That's how we got started. And that was sort of what our focus was, to really help each other. We weren't going to exclude anybody, but we thought we'd help each other and add folks. We found out that there was actually a group that was meeting in the library, but the majority of the members there were white members of the community. And they, too, didn't focus on African-American genealogy. And in fact, the person who was running that group, they were actually supportive of us getting together and focusing on African-American genealogy because the person that was running it, they really didn't know how to help African-American people who would come and stop in, that they could only go so far as being able to help them and that they would refer people to us if they had issues or problems. And so we said, okay, that was fine. So that was how we got started and how we actually started to grow. When was the Washtenaw County African-American Genealogical Society founded? We started talking in April of 2013. Those were the earliest minutes I could find. 2014, I actually went to the county building and got the DBA, Doing Business Ads, kind of lock our name in. But it was 2013 that we actually started meeting that spring, and we met beginning in April of that year. And it was the following year in April that we actually took out the paperwork pay the 10 bucks to lock our name in. You've talked about this a little bit, but what inspired the founding of the Washington County African-American Genealogical Society? The members of the society, we were friends, and then there were family members. And then there were people in the community that were, like I said, going to the library, working independently, and people weren't able to really find resources in the community, or people were looking for help. And there really weren't people to help them. They didn't know where to go for help. And so we thought we'd come together to bring a group of people together to help each other. And that really was the impetus, was to really bring people together to support one another, 
to help each other break down these barriers and to share our knowledge and to really help each other in our search and in our quest to find out how to do this research and how to find lost family members, how to explore and how to use those resources that were out there. Because if you don't know how to do the research, you really don't know. It's a big thing now, but research and finding your roots and those things were just coming on television. Those shows were just coming on and people were getting more and more interested. DNA tests were just starting to be more popular. So people needed more and more assistance. Those of us who were doing research for a while said, well, hey, we'd be willing to help. And so that's how it got started. Are there other genealogical societies in Washtenaw County? Yes, there's the Washtenaw County Genealogical Society, and I belong to that society. They meet on the fourth Sunday. And I go to that society because even though their focus isn't on African-American genealogical studies, you learn from all of the societies that you belong to. So I belong to Indiana. I just joined one in New England. You know, I belong to all of the societies because all of the societies have their own focus and their own history and their own programs and their own way of presenting information. So you learn from all of the societies and they tell you to belong to more than one because there are people there with all kinds of expertise that can help you. And certainly as an African-American, you have to actually belong to more than one because our heritage is so diverse. I just found out that I have German ancestors. So I have to belong to the Washtenaw County Genealogy Society because they have a German special interest group. If I want to find out about the German ancestors that I have in my family, where am I going to find out other than to work with those members of the Washtenaw County Genealogical Society who have German ancestors? That's what their focus is in their research. So if I want to to learn, I can talk to them. I have Irish ancestors in my family. I can go to those folks in the Washtenaw County Genealogical Society who actually have Irish ancestors. So as African-Americans, it really is the give and take. And one of the things I say about our society is that there are European Americans who have African-American genetics in their family. And if they want to find out about those African-American ancestors in their family, they need to come to our society to talk about those ancestors. In fact, that's one of the things we talked about, I think, in the last Washtenaw County Genealogical Society. One of the members there in doing her family research found that her family members actually had enslaved people in her family. And in finding those enslaved family members, she actually went back and did some research on those enslaved members and followed those formerly enslaved people through the census so that she could find out who those, it was a baby, who that baby was and who that baby's family was. And that's one of the things that we'd like to encourage people who, who, in looking at their family wills, find out that, oh, my family actually had enslaved people, because that is the missing link. For some Black families who are looking for, where were my enslaved ancestors? Well, they're owned by someone, and someone may have those papers. And that's an important way of linking families together. And for us, It's a very painful, but also healing process that takes place when you are able to identify and put those family members back together again. It's a way of sharing to say, hey, I have found your family for you. 
it isn't an issue of recrimination, but rather a way of healing that really needs to take place in this country overall. But it starts with and can start with just what we're doing in terms of finding out who our ancestors were and who we are as descendants and putting the putting those pieces back together again. Are there other genealogical societies that focus specifically on African-American genealogy in Michigan? There are two other societies. The oldest society, which is the Fred Hart Williams Genealogical Society in Detroit. They started in 1979. They're 42 years old. And then there's the Lansing area, African-American Genealogical Society. They started in 2001. And then there's us, WAGs. We started in 2013. So there are three of us. What makes African-American genealogy so different? What are the different kinds of tools someone with African-American roots would use to learn more about their family history? And what are centum organs? What makes it different in doing African-American genealogical research and just if you're doing, let's say, Caucasian or European history or genealogy research is that you start with the census data. Well, For African-Americans, we were not included in census by names until 1870. Before then, we are not included by names. We're only, you go to the slave schedules, and we're only little tick marks. So we are not included by names. You know, the census is every 10 years, unless we are free. Free people are listed by name, or if you're 100 years old, you're listed by name. But other than that, you're only a tick mark maybe a name, or maybe just age. So if you read the slave schedules, there would be, say, the enslaver, Mr. Jones, and there would be a list of the enslaved people by age. It would be a male, 20, female, 16, and there just would be a tick mark, a little line, a tick, tick, you know. But there's no name. So if you're trying to find your ancestry, unless you know who the enslaver is, you still wouldn't know if that's your ancestor. You might know that my family member lived in North Carolina and was possibly owned by Mr. Jones. And my ancestor could have been that 20-year-old, but you don't know because he may have had four 20-year-olds or he may have had six 20-year-olds. You don't know. Unless Maybe you you look at the 1870 census and there's a 20-year-old who has your ancestor's name. And then you can kind of project that, yeah, maybe that 20-year-old, if the 20-year-old could be my ancestor. Or if you look at the 1850 slave schedules and there's a 10-year-old and then there's the 1860s, there's a 20-year-old. And then in the 1870s, there's a 30-year-old and he's named Bob Smith, and that's your ancestry. You might be able to construe that that might be my, but you really don't know unless you find a will. And then maybe in the will, it says that Mr. Jones wills in 1868, your ancestor by name of the particular age at 28 rather than 30. That's the kind of research you wind up doing if you're African-American. So you hit this brick wall at 1870 because your ancestors are not listed by name. So you're looking at wills, you're looking at estate records, you're looking at the slave schedules, all kind of other pieces of information because 
the African-Americans were seen as property. We weren't seen as people. You're looking to find your family and your family members the way you would be looking for cows, pigs. We weren't seen as people, so you're not going to find us. And so it makes doing our research and finding our family members that much more difficult. You're not gonna find them as you would do traditional research, like looking for baptismal records. African-Americans weren't allowed to marry. So you aren't gonna find them in marriage records. You aren't gonna find birth certificates because they weren't seen as human beings or treated that way. So you aren't gonna find those traditional records prior to 1870, unless they were free. And then even if they were free, those records are scarce. You asked me about cinemorgans. Cinemorgans, that's a way of measuring the degree to which you are related to one family member or another. It's a way, it's a way of measuring DNA. This amount of DNA you inherit from one person to another. For instance, a mother and a child, like my children and I share, my mother and a daughter will share 50%. You inherit from your parents 50%, 50% from your mother, 50% from your father. I have first cousins that I share 900 centimorgans. I have some first cousins that I only share 800 centimorgans. It's the amount of DNA that you share with them. My granddaughter just did her DNA test, and I have a first cousin that I share more DNA with than I do with my granddaughter. I share less DNA with my granddaughter than I do with my first cousin. What it is, is just the luck of the draw. It's sort of random, the amount of DNA that you share. It's sort of random, but it's within a range. That's the best way I can explain it without having a chart to show you. But there's a range that tells you within this range, that person is a first cousin, or that person is a second cousin, or that person is a parent or a child, or that person is a second cousin, that person is a third cousin, just the distance between you. The further away that person is to you, the smaller the cinemorg is. My a daughter and I, we share 3,000 cinemorgans. My first cousin and I, we only share 900 cinemorgans. My second cousin and I, we share 100 cinemorgans. I have third cousins that I share 50 cinemorgans. And then it gets smaller and smaller. One of the things, though, that's very interesting that happened last year or two years ago Ancestry eliminated seven cinemorgans or less because they said that those cinemorgans, they were so negligible, they were so small that really you couldn't possibly find any relationship. But I have found that with African American families, that's not necessarily so. Well, because of the way our families were dispersed during slavery in terms of family members being sold off and then family members, you know, marrying or having children by someone else and being sold to this farm, to this family, to this family. The cinnamorgans get smaller and smaller. Well, what happened for me is that I have found eight cinnamorgans have led me to my fifth half cousins who just happen to be the other half is the white part of my family. Those are the enslavers. The DNA has led me to the person who owned my family. So it's led me to the owners of my family uh, because those half cousins, those half white females, their grandfathers or fifth great grandfathers are actually my half fifth great grandfathers. And the other half 
are my fifth African-American grandmothers. So those small cinnamorgans that if I hadn't saved them, I wouldn't have known that those were my cousins because I've gotten DNA matches to those cousins. One of the questions you asked, were there any fines? Those have been some of the fines that I've gotten through doing this research and doing this genealogy stuff. So what does a meeting of the Washington County African-American Genealogical Society look like? It looks a lot like what I'm sharing with you, where we get together and share our breakthroughs. What are the things that you've found? It's people sharing those stories of what they have found in their families. One of our members recently has actually found on the slave narratives, she's found one of her great-grandmothers, who was actually one of the persons actually telling her story. It's doing presentations where people present either their family histories, or I've done presentations like the Black Loyalists, or people doing classes on how to understand your DNA. So it's a combination of those kind of things. Or just getting together, just talking about DNA, or getting together and talking about our research, or getting together and talking about our families, or sharing family histories, or sharing oral histories. Because one of the things that happens when we share our stories is that we find out that we're related to each other. That's the other thing. People are sharing their stories and sharing where their families are from and what their family histories are. And people have found out that, gee whiz, we're related to each other. Or I recognize that name. And then through research, finding out that, gee whiz, we are related. So those kinds of things happen at our meetings. What is the genealogical connection between Ypsilanti, Michigan, and Canada in terms of African-American genealogy, history, and migration? And who were the Black loyalists? Back in the early 1800s, there were probably more African-Americans in Washtenaw County and Ypsilanti area than there were actually in Detroit. My family actually was one of the early Ypsilanti families, but they came to Ypsilanti from Canada. I don't know if you know the research that Max Siegfried has done in looking at the early history of Ypsilanti, but a large percentage of the early Ypsilanti families were actually Canadian families that migrated to Ypsilanti. My family was among those families. My great-grandparents came to Ypsilanti. My, in fact, my mother was born in Ypsilanti, which kind of is, when I think about it, surprising to me because here I am back here in Ypsilanti. When I reflect on it, it's like, what am I doing in Ipsy? I was born in Detroit. You know, and a majority of my family lives in Detroit. And here I am in Ipsy. But my great-grandmother and my great-great-grandmother both were here in Ipsy. My mother was born here. And my great-grandmother and her mother were here in Ipsy. But my great-grandmother was born in Canada. And her and her family came to Detroit, but then moved to Ypsilanti because her uncle was part of the Massachusetts 54th, he was here in Ypsilanti. So they just followed family members here to Ypsilanti and built their families and stayed. And then some of them went back to Detroit. There was a train in Buxton, Canada, that went through Buxton and actually came to Ypsilanti. And people went back and forth between Ypsilanti and Buxton, Canada. So most of those families just took the train back and forth. You know, stories in my family were like, you know, during World War II, my grandma would come back and forth and bring butters and make cakes for the kids on the weekends and those kinds of things. 
it was a very fluid border for my family in terms of them just going back and forth because they lived on both sides of the border. The churches were on both sides of the border and my family has ministers and they pastored on both sides of the border. So they just went back and forth. So they have that rich history of not really seeing the border as two separate countries or as something that separated them. Because we had family on both sides of the border, they just saw us like you would see Detroit and Ypsilanti. They would see Buxton and Ypsilanti as just visiting cousins, basically. Sort of like going south, they would see coming to Ipsia as like going, coming south or going north, they would see going to Canada. Oh, yes, who were the Black loyalists? The Black loyalists were actually either free men of color or former enslaved men who fought in Revolutionary War on behalf of Britain against the colonists and who were promised and then given their freedom by the British once the war was over. And they were evacuated out of the United States and given land, because that's what they were promised, land in Canada. Because they were promised if they fought for Britain, they would be given their freedom and land. And that's what they did. And they fought on behalf of Britain. And because the colonists won, and it was a war of independence, and so the colonists won, and the United States became the United States eventually. And for those people who were loyal to the crown or loyal to England, were tossed out. And they left the United States by way of boats leaving New York to Canada, and they were promised land and they were given land. Of course, the Black people were given the worst land, but that's, a, that's my presentation. But anyway, they were called loyalists. And uh, those who were Black were the Black loyalists. Those who were white are white loyalists, and they were called just loyalists or UEL or United Empire loyalists. The UEL recognizes those who were white loyalists and black loyalists just happen to have the designation as black loyalists to designate them as being those people who were free or those people who were formerly enslaved. And they were promised by Lord Dunmore that they would have freedom and a land. And the British did that because the colonists were winning and they needed more men. And it was a way of demoralizing the colonists because any enslaved person that could make it to British encampment would be given their freedom and would be given their land if they would fight on behalf of the British. And so people who were enslaved in South Carolina and Maryland and those southern states would get themselves up to Virginia and into those British encampments. The British would then take them in and make them part of the British military with the promise of freedom. And they became Black loyalists, and they eventually left this country, went to Canada. So have members of the Washington County African-American Genealogical Society discovered family connections that were previously unknown? Yes. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the whole goal, is to find those lost ancestors. And so that's sort of what people are doing. Breaking down those barriers and finding those family members that they could not find members who in their family that they didn't know were family members, lost cousins, or certainly people who were loyalists. When people left at the end of the Revolutionary War, their names were listed in what's called the Book of Negroes. Those were the names of people who fought with the British. They had to identify themselves because the Treaty of Paris, this is more history, I don't know if you want, 
It was a treaty that ended the Revolutionary War where George Washington demanded that there be reparations paid for those former slaves that were given their freedom, that the owners had to be paid for those people who were given their freedom. And so in order to do that, the British had to list their names, identifying who they were, who they belonged to, what they looked like. And then those former enslavers were paid for those people. People have gone to the Book of Negroes and found listed the names of their family members. I tell people, if you can't find your family and you're looking and looking and looking and can't find family members before the Civil War, look in Canada because they may have been loyalists and they may be in Canada. They may not be in in the United States. I mean, you may be looking for relatives in 1860s, you're looking at tick marks, but they might not have been in the United States in 1860s. They may, in 1773, 1774, they may have been in the Revolutionary War. Over 3,000 free and former enslaved people left the United States as loyalists, went to Canada, came back to the United States, though, after the Civil War. So you may find your family here in the 1870s and think that they have been here all along, when actually they were up in Canada. And so people have actually found their family members that they weren't in the United States. They came back to fight in the Civil War on behalf of their family members who they know were enslaved. And they came back to fight to free those people who they know were enslaved, but they were free. Because they were free, they came back to fight on behalf of the freedom of people that they know that they had left in the United States to be free. Those are the kinds of things we talk about when we ask, what do we talk about? is sharing that kind of history and that kind of understanding of our history as African-Americans in this country. That you have to know that African-Americans fought in the Revolutionary War, that in the 1780s, they were actually up in Canada and then came back to the United States. Because most people will think, and American history would have you think or believe that all African-Americans were enslaved and have been in this country since the 1700s, what, 1619, and then that they've only been in the Southern states when actually they've actually been up in Canada, free, came back to the United States. You know, my family is a a family that has been in Canada since 1831. People have come back to the United States to fight in the Civil War. But my family's been in Canada since 1831, which was prior to the creation of the Underground Railroad. If I'm looking for my family and I can't find them, I can look and look and look, look. It's just that I know, because I know family history, that they're in Canada in 1831. Being able to share those stories helps other people looking and doing their research to have insights to go, oh, well, maybe I need to look for, I can't find my family. Maybe I need to look in Canada and look at some of those records, those old church records, and look at some of those early Canadian communities to see if maybe my family is there and that maybe my family is a Canadian family that came back to the United States. If I didn't know, I would think that you as my family was in Ipsy in 1920. And I might be looking, well, let me find out where they came from in the South. And I would go to the Southern states looking for my family when no. They didn't come from the South to the North. They came from Canada to the South, not from the South 
to the north, but they came from the north to the south. It's those kinds of discoveries that other families have made in our group. How do oral history records factor into genealogical research? They enhance your research and they can help clarify. That's one of the things that I was sharing like with, with my family history. When I was 10, my grandmother told me that her grandmother was a baby on the Underground Railroad and that one night when they were running away, the slave catchers were almost catching them, almost there, and they were hiding under the floorboards. One of the things that they didn't do was they didn't run away with babies because of the babies would cry at night. They would run at night and sleep during the day, but the babies' voices would carry at night. So they didn't want to take babies because little babies' voices would carry. But they took my great-great-grandmother anyway. Everybody was afraid when they were hiding that the baby was going to wake up and cry and give them away. And sure enough, she woke up. But then her mom put her breast in her mouth and fed the baby, and she didn't cry. And then from then on, they called, they called her baby girl, baby girl Rouse, baby who didn't cry. So that was what my great-grandmother told me. Now, I knew that story. And I've known that story since I was 10, about maybe 15 years ago, I'm doing my ancestry and I got an ancestry hit, you know, that tells you, you've got somebody wrote me and said, hey, I think we're related because my great, looks like our great grandmothers were sisters. I go, okay. And so I meet this person and I go, oh, where are you? I was living in Ann Arbor then. I thought, oh, this was somebody who lives a zillion miles away. I found somebody. She lives in Ipsy. It's, my, it's like, oh, okay. So we're second cousins. And I go, oh, we get to talking. And I go, and sure enough, our great grandmothers are sisters. And then I say, you know what? My great grandmother told me this story about her mother. And she goes, really? And I go, yeah, when she was a baby, she finishes the story. She said, yeah, my grandmother told me that too. I said, you know the story about the baby? She goes, yes. I said, wow. Both of our grandmothers had told us a story about our great-great-grandmother. So 10 years ago, I go to this conference in Detroit. The two of us go, because she lives in Ipsy. She's in our genealogy group. We go to Fred Hart Williams in Detroit conference. And I see this guy, African-American guy. He's got white hair. Now I pay attention to people with white hair because that's a trait that's in our family. My great-grandmother has white hair. My cousin whose grandmother was a sister, she has white hair. Her, her grandmother has white hair. It's just a trait in our family. And I see this guy and we're on a break and he has onk on. And my ex-husband belongs to a church in Detroit. They were onk. And I comment on his onk and we get to talking. And I go, yeah, my ex-husband belongs. He goes, oh yeah, I belong to that church. He goes, oh, well, what's your ex-husband's name? I go, oh, Garnett. He goes, oh, Garnett. Because he sees my name tag. He goes, so that's my best friend. I go, really? That's my ex-husband. He goes, oh yeah. So we get to talking. His grandmother is my great-grandmother's sister. He knows the story because we get to talking. I go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's my great-grandmother. Your grandmother is my great-grandmother's sister. So I go get my cousin. 
she's my second cousin because we're all we're second cousins we're all second cousins and I go wait a minute let me go get my cousin because her grandmother that's her mother too they're sisters so they're three sisters and we all know the same story he brings his first cousin to the library because he lives in Detroit his first cousin also lives in Detroit now my cousin Kim she lives here in Ipsy with me now but his first cousin the two of them live in Detroit but their first cousins, because their grandmothers are sisters, there were five girls. These are four sisters. They all know the story of their grandmother, because this is their grandmother. It's my great-grandmother. It's Kim's great-grandmother, but it's their grandmother's story that they know. It's the story that they all know. We all know the same story of baby girl Rouse, the baby who didn't cry on the Underground Railroad. It's a story that we all know and we all share. So when we do the research, it's the stories that bind families together. For us, it's the way that we all know, that we know we are related, but it's also the stories that help people find each other. One of our members in, in our group, her family story is that her family was not enslaved. We were not enslaved. That means that their family member, when you're doing the research, that they're looking for a free person. So when you're doing the research, you're looking for a free person. Our great-grandfather was not enslaved. He was a free man. So now that means when you're doing your research, you're looking for a free person. That means you should be able to find that person in the 1860 census. That's what that means. So th those family stories are really clues to helping you find your family members. Those stories are very important and they're very precious. And they're things I tell people, don't dismiss them. Use them because they can help you find your family members. If you're sitting in a genealogy group and someone says, you know, my name is Jones and my grandfather was free and your grandfather was a Jones or your grandfather's brother and you, you have a last name of Jones and you know your grandfather was free, you might want to talk to that person. Because that person might be related to you. Those family stories are precious. And I tell people, don't discount them. Don't discount them. How does the genealogical research the Washtenaw County African American Genealogical Society does change our perception of history? And how can this genealogical and historical research be harnessed to change the way United States history is taught and understood, especially by young people? I think it's so important because I think it can help bring communities together. You know, we're having this whole nationwide debate around this critical racial theory, this craziness, and all that is is telling the truth about race and the racial history of this country. For somebody like me, that's just telling us the truth about my family. My family history is my third great grandfather was enslaved in North Carolina by a man whose father killed his father in front of him, but whose son was breastfed right along with him and who was his best friend growing up and who was so close to him that on his deathbed, he asked him to please take care of his wife and his children. And when he died, the two of them fell in love and they ran away together to Canada. That's John Walls and Jane King Walls. Jane, who was a Scott-Irish woman, 
ran away with the man who was formerly enslaved by her former husband, ran away with her four white children. And together they had an additional six children in Canada. They ran away on the Underground Railroad together. That's my family history. At the same time, she was running away. I have the documents where her father was selling a slave. That's my grandfather. Her father is my fourth great grandfather. I can no more disown him than I can disown her. That's her father. Her father is my fourth great grandfather. The man who shot and killed John Freeman Walls was a white man, but his wife's father was selling slaves the same time he was running away with a woman who, because she could write, wrote a piece of paper that said, my husband has given me permission to take my children and my slave north. And she pretended she couldn't read so that if they got caught, she wouldn't wind up being murdered along with her children for being with this black man. It's a complicated history. It is a complicated history. And the more genealogy I do, the more white ancestors I find. I'm doing all of this black loyalist history and I think I find black loyalists in my family only to find that they're not black loyalists, they're UELs. I find William Perry, William Perry was a white loyalist. His son was a drummer boy. He's Henry Perry's father. How do I know? Because I get a DNA hit on his mother. And her father also served in the Revolutionary War. So I've got, I've got white revolutionaries. I don't have black loyalists. I have white revolutionaries. That's my history. It's a complicated history. You look at me and you don't see those people. Because the color of my skin doesn't show the complexity of my history. But that's the same thing for people who look like you. Because if you go to our family reunions up in Canada, Jane King has descendants that look like you. My first cousin's children have red hair. I have cousins that have blue eyes. I have first cousins, second cousins born with blonde hair. It's just who we are. And like I said, that critical race theory, that's my family history. It is complicated. If we tell the truth about who we are and the truth of our history, we'd be a better country and we'd be a lot better people. It has taken me doing this genealogy to get to this place because I was a Black nationalist in the 60s, even though I had a white great-grandmother. My Canadian great-grandmother would not come to this country because of slavery. She was 92 years old. And she got a job working as a companion to a senior citizen because she would not live in this country because of slavery. She refused. She stayed in Canada. 
on my grandfather's side. She, she refused to live in this country because of slavery. She was part of my family who would not come back to this country. That is the complexity of the, our country's history and the effect it's had on the people of this country, both African-American and, and white. Because Jane King wound up being an abolitionist. You know, she came back to this country twice and brought people to freedom. How can people get involved? We meet at the library on the third Saturdays of the month. Hopefully we'll get back to being in the library. One of the things that's important, I, I think, the most important thing that we do is to help people do their, their research. And that's being able to work on Sundays at the library after our meetings. And that will be to maybe get back to being able to be in the library and to be available for people at the Whitaker Road Library computer room because they had the, all the different computers set up so we can help people one-on-one -on -one with their research and help them with their individual problems and their individual brick walls. Even though we work together as a group, people have individual issues that you really have to sit down and help people work through because this work can be painful for people because everybody's stories is different. Everybody has a different story. And like I said, our stories can be very painful. Like the story for me of John Walls' father being killed, that's very painful because John was playing with Daniel and they were toddlers. John's mother breastfed the two of them together. They grew up like brothers and they just changed roles. One played the slave and one, one played the freedman. And John played the boss and Daniel played the slave. And Daniel's father saw him and beat John. And John's dad could do nothing about it but run away. He ran away and Daniel's father caught him, brought him back and shot him in front of him and sold his mother off. That's painful. That's a painful story for me. Other people have painful stories in their families. The fact that not all of the interracial stories are love stories. You know, they're, they're not. Mine just happens to be a love story. You have to appreciate that when you talk with people and you work with people and you help people find out who their ancestors are and how their people are related to other people. It takes a certain amount of sensitivity and a certain amount of trust and a certain amount of openness and honesty to work with people and uh, willingness to sit with people and talk about our history and then to help people move past the painful part to knowing that we're family. Like I said, Jane's father was selling slaves when she was running away and to appreciate how brave it was for her to do what she did. She ran with her four children. I don't know if I could have done that because she put not only her life in danger, she endangered her children, but that's the woman that she was. And, you know, I've come to respect her. The more of this I do, 
the more history I learn, the more I tell of her story. This episode was produced in collaboration with the Washtenaw County African American Genealogical Society. Thank you to co-founders Jean Winborn and Cheryl Garnett for believing in this partnership, and a special thank you to Ms. Garnett for sharing the history and mission of this organization, as well as her own personal history with Ipsy Stories listeners. Another special thank you to Charlene Collier for helping to connect the podcast with the society. And with all your help with the episode and with the presentations made to the society, you are an invaluable collaborator, coworker, and friend. A special thank you to Sam Killian for all his work on the Ipsy Stories webpage. We couldn't do it without you, Sam. A special thank you to local musician Annie Palmer for providing music for this podcast. You can check out more of her music at anniepalmermusic.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening to Ipsy Stories. If you liked what you heard today, please consider subscribing and telling your friends and neighbors about this podcast. You can subscribe to Ipsy Stories wherever you find your podcasts. You can also explore previous episodes with additional resources at ipsylibrary.org slash ipsystories. If you have ideas or story suggestions, you can get in touch with me at shoshana at ipsylibrary.org. That's S-H-O-S-H-A-N-N-A at Y-P-S-I l-i-b-r-a-r-y dot o-r-g Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thanks for listening all the way to the end of the episode. In our next episode, we'll be learning from historian Leah Zeus about the active and intentional roles of government and business in implementing and perpetuating discrimination well past Supreme Court decisions that should have eliminated it. And we'll look at how this has shaped Ypsilanti to this day. This episode will be released in early February in support of the upcoming exhibit at the Ypsilanti District Library about eviction and housing insecurity. If you don't want to miss it or other future episodes, you can always subscribe to Ipsy Stories on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends and neighbors about us too. Bye now.